This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, A.J. Kirsten, and today I'm joined by a very special guest from another institution, uh, Professor George Contreras. He's James T. Jensen, endowed professor of transactional law and director for the program of intellectual property and technology law at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law. Thank you so much for joining me this week. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. So, very unique subject that, that we haven't di- uh, really discussed at all in the past on the show. So, I'm really, it's super interesting to dive into. You recently wrote an article for the uh, Harvard Law Petrie Flom Center's uh, Bill of Health blog. Uh, the article is titled, uh, let me make sure I get it right, Another Legislative Attempt to Revive Gene Patenting. Uh, I'm going to put a link to the article in the episode description at the, the podcast website, and as well as a link to his book that we'll dive into later called The Genome Defense Inside the Epic Legal Battle to determine who owns your DNA. These, these are basically centered around a specific case, um, the Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics. Just as a baseline, like this is the case history that everything's based on, I think that you discuss in these. Uh, what's it about? So the case uh, which went to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013 is about whether it's possible to get patents on naturally occurring human DNA sequences, right? Our, our genes, essentially. So it, this must, this is something that basically couldn't exist 100 years ago, I'm assuming. This, this is based on technologies that re, re, really came to fruition over the last like 20 years or so, correct? Um, yeah, yeah. The very beginnings of gene sequencing started in the 1980s, which is Surprisingly, like 40 years ago now, it's something I kind of remember, actually. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it, it got going in the late 80s when the Human Genome Project was first uh, conceptualized. And, and by the 90s, uh, this was a big deal, big business. How did this end up getting uh, patents involved? Uh, like, at what level did that start? Was it like immediately? Like, we now we now know the patterns for everything, so we're gonna we're gonna dive into this and, and get uh, protection for our pharmaceutical company or something like that. It is it must have been a, a process? It you know, like a lot of things in the law, it was very incremental, and and that's sort of how we ended up where we did. So. You know, starting even earlier in the 60s and 70s, researchers started to uh, discover um, attributes of microorganisms and uh, develop um, uh, through recombinant DNA techniques uh, to bacteria that had certain qualities. And there was, you know, debate about this in the 70s. Um, there was a big debate about whether it was possible to patent uh, a life form, a new modified bacterium. Uh, that could uh, break down oil, petrocarbon uh, spills. Uh, the Supreme Court in 1980 said, yes, that's doable as long as it's something that was created by people. And so over the years, as uh, we started to explore the human genome, in addition to these microorganisms, patents began to issue until we got to a point where whole genes were being discovered, genes that had some linkage to a disease or a physical trait Um, And when they were discovered, those genes were also patented as new compositions of matter, right? Something 
that uh, is like like a new uh, form of uh, uh, polyester or <laughs> a new metallic alloy, a gene that was admittedly uh, isolated and purified in the laboratory so that it was produced in a form that doesn't exist in the human body, um, yet is identical to the thing that exists in the human body. So what sort of, it seems like a lot of this was ethical complaints when it comes to myriad genetics in this case, where it was, you're, this is something that's in nature, how can you have a patent on this? And just a consumer protection issue with regards to the cost that these pharmaceutical companies were charging for genetic testing. Yeah, the Myriad case itself involved genes that are highly indicative of breast and ovarian cancer. If you have certain variants in them, a woman's chance of getting breast cancer will increase something like eight times um, over the population average if she has one of these particular mutations. So it's very important for human health. But one company, Myriad, did obtain patents covering these genes as compositions of matter and basically used those patents to monopolize the market in uh, genetic screening for these variants. And because they were the only player in the market in the U.S., they could charge whatever they wanted uh, for the test. And they did charge an amount of $3,000. That's much higher than your typical, you know, laboratory tests that you get in a checkup. And that wasn't covered by most insurance plans, at least not in the early days, wasn't covered by Medicaid. Um, and so that presented a problem for a lot of women uh, who couldn't afford the test. Like scientists knew what the genetic variants were that would give you this incredible um, likelihood of getting cancer. But because this one company held the patents and controlled them very tightly, you couldn't find out whether you had these variants, even though they were well known to science. What case did Myriad Genetics use to, to defend this? I mean, that this must be, a, it comes across to be very cold hearted to defend in court. Well, you know, Myriad, to its credit, it, it acted like any other company really, it's like its goal is to make money for its yeah. shareholders. Um, and, you know, their one of their primary sort of ethical defenses was, look, we didn't violate the law. We got these patents from the United States government. The patent office gave us these patents. It's not like we stole them uh, or defrauded the patent office. And in truth, they did follow the rules. The patent office had been issuing these patents for more than 20 years by the time this case was brought. And it's a remarkable case because at the time it was brought, which was um, 2009, everyone in the field or most people in the field thought this was well-settled law. Like we may not like it, um, but it is the law. The patent office has been doing this for a long time. And so Myriad is acting just like many other companies, right? They weren't the only one. There were lots and thousands of genes had been covered by patents by this time. And, uh, you know, it took it took some outsiders who who didn't really care that everyone thought this was a law to uh, challenge it. I guess this brings up a, a tangent of ethics and the patent office. I mean, what sort of what sort of ethical standards does the patent office have when it comes to things like this? Because this is obviously an extreme case where it's like, it's your DNA. Like there's only so many combinations that are really used for human genetics. Where, how do they determine whether something's ethical or not with something like this? 
Yeah, I mean, there there really is no ethical test for new patents, right? There there used to be, you know, in a century ago, a doctrine called moral utility. Um, you know, an invention, you can only get a patent on an invention if it's quote unquote useful. Uh, most inventions are useful in some way, otherwise you wouldn't bother to spend the money to get the patent. Right. Um, but this doctrine of moral utility with Justice Joseph's story developed, you know, again, back back in the day, um, said that if there's an invention that is immoral in some way, like uh, tools for assassination, right, or human poisoning, uh, then those shouldn't get a patent. That, be, I mean, admittedly, that's a pretty subjective test. <laughs> and so uh, you've got lots of patents today on things that some people would say are immoral, firearms, all sorts of weapons. Um, sex toys are an incredibly popular area of, of patenting. Um, some people find those objectionable. But because morality is such a subjective area, we, we no longer check this at the patent office. And I mean, in many of these cases, that's probably the right decision. What was the industry fallout from the decision in this case? Because 23andMe and all these other companies just exploded after this ruling. Yeah, so in 2013, the Supreme Court said that you can't patent naturally occurring DNA sequences. And, and that had a big effect, right? Um, so in the BRCA testing market, there was an immediate increase of competition. Other companies jumped into the field right away, offering much lower prices. So that, yeah, today with 23andMe for whatever it is, $129, $99, you know, if it's the uh, holiday sale, you can you can find out whether you've got these uh, genetic mutations. Um, and, you know, you can act on this. I'm, I'm not sure I would make a significant health decision based on a 23andMe test, but at least you know to go to your doctor and ask uh, more about it. This is the case with a lot of um, genes that, that are associated with diseases. Um, so it's not just breast and ovarian cancer. There are hereditary diseases like Tay-Sachs disease, um, Canavan syndrome that, you know, maternal uh, screening used to happen and then it didn't, it stopped once patents issued on the genes. It's started again, nonprofits, religious groups, um, universities will offer testing for these types of conditions, often for very minimal cost or even for free. Um, and, you know, one of the most interesting aspects and important aspects I think of this whole situation doesn't even relate to humans. Um, but relates to pathogens, right? So viruses have a genomic sequence. It's RNA, not DNA generally, but more or less the same thing legally. And uh, before 2013, when you had uh, viral outbreaks like uh, SARS and MERS and H5N1, there were disputes over patents on the uh, baseline genomic sequences of these viruses from the first labs that discovered them. But we didn't see that in 2020 uh, when the SARS-CoV-2 um, sequence was first elucidated by researchers in China, uh, as it turns out. They, they made those publicly available immediately, or within a week, uh, to public databases. And that really had an effect. It helped accelerate the search for vaccines and therapeutics for this disease. And so there's been a pretty important impact that this decision has had. 
Now, what about these genetic industries like uh, companies like Myriad Genetics, where now they've lost that patentability that was essential to them, probably <laughs> making their shareholders happy? I mean, what's the incentive for these companies to continue to operate in this sphere? Like, is there a workaround where maybe they're not uh, able to patent the the, the genetic, genetic sequences specifically, but they're able to patent like the process or something like that? There, there are certainly processes that can be patented. You know, there are many, there, there's plenty of room for patenting. Um, you know, take the vaccines, for example, for COVID-19. There are all sorts of patentable um, elements of those. In the genetics diagnostics industry, um, you know, most of the methods are pretty well known, um, you know, so they're not novel anymore. <clears throat> Nevertheless, these companies are still, in existence, right? Myriad is 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 big. It's here um, on the campus of the University of Utah, and each time I drive by, it's like they've opened up a new building, right? There, there's plenty of business left. Um, most medical tests are no longer under patent, yet testing is is a huge business. Um, companies like LabCorp and Ambry uh, will test for hundreds of different. Um, indication with a blood test, cholesterol, um, you name it, and they charge for this and they make a profit off of it. Uh, so even without patents, there is still a profitable business to be had in this area. Did it have an impact when it comes to maybe um, more rare genetic diseases or things that maybe just a very small amount of the population might um, uh need to have a test for or something of that nature when it comes to genetics because you figure with patents they could if they could patent it they could sell it for tens of thousands of dollars and hope the insurance industry would just pick up the bill has there been an, any impact that's noticeable when it comes to that kind of uh, side of things so interestingly no right so the the idea of orphan diseases and rare diseases when you're talking about treatments and and drugs for them this is a big problem right if you've got a disease that only 100 people suffer from um there's not you know that either a drug has to be really expensive as we've seen with some of the gene therapies that have come out for rare diseases lately they're like two million dollars per treatment right so it's got to be a really expensive drug or um, it's got to have a lot of people who have it, something like asthma or high cholesterol, right? That'll You can price it cheaply and still millions of people will buy it. For genetic diagnostic testing, the, the, the markets just don't work the same way. There's a huge incentive for academic researchers, for example, to discover genetic associations with diseases. There's, you know, the NIH offers $40 billion of funding every year for various programs. Um, there's a huge amount of discovery going on in uh, research institutions and universities. Um, and, you know, researchers do this uh, to further the health mission of the university, to publish papers and more likely to, uh, you know, to get recognition, to advance in their fields. Um, it's not the type of work that requires a huge uh, company, venture capital backed in order to do. Now, universities don't themselves, you know, offer these tests, or some of them do, some have clinics that offer tests. But once a university or an academic institution discovers a genetic variation, the testing can then be carried out by any of the, uh, the existing um, testing laboratories. Again, take LabCorp. Um, they can add on yet another genetic test at some cost. It'll be covered by insurance most likely eventually. They've got a very well-established mechanism to get 
payors and the you know CMS, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, to pay for their tests. So again, I'm not unsympathetic to the arguments around orphan diseases and, and drugs for them and the incentives that patents provide in a lot of really useful ways. But in this industry, um, it, it is true, it's hard to get venture capital financing these days for a new genetic diagnostics company, but that doesn't seem to have made genetic diagnostics unavailable to patients who need them. And in fact, has made them cheaper. So in the last couple minutes here, I mean, it looks like on August 1st, 2022, Senator Tillis introduced the Patent Eligibility Restoration Act of 2022. Oh, these acts, geez, um, <laughs> What is he looking to introduce with this? And do you think it, it's going to be problematic to the industry? Well, so the purpose of this bill, which again, it, it, the, the Senator Tillis and others introduced a similar bill back in 2019, um, and there was agitation, you know, from the industry uh, to get patents back on these types of things because it certainly does make the industry more profitable. Um, and so, what these bills would do is essentially reverse the Supreme Court's uh, ruling in Myriad and a number of other Supreme Court cases and other areas, software business methods and uh, whatnot, right? It was just reverse these cases. Why? So that you could again get patents on natural occurring uh, DNA sequences that are isolated and purified. And it's simply uh, a measure to help the industry. Would that hurt the other side of the industry, like the 23andMe's and just the, the rate the individual consumer looking to get genetic testing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, before 2013, it was much riskier for companies, uh, university clinics, nonprofits to test for these indications and do genetic screening. And we'd be right back um, in that era. And even though the human genome has been sequenced now for a good 20 years, more or less, the individual variants that might have some impact on disease susceptibility haven't. They're new. So, for example, we may find in the next year some genetic variant that makes one resistant to COVID-19, right? There are people, like myself included, who have never gotten COVID-19. Thank goodness. Um, why is that? Well, there may be a genetic uh, route to that, a genetic, uh, and we don't know what it is yet, but we may figure it out. And I submit to you and your listeners that we all would be better off if that were not patented. There's a huge incentive to find it. Researchers all across the world are looking for it. They don't need patents to do that. Um, they will find it. And when they do, it would be awfully nice to have a test that uh, costs a few dollars um, to, uh, you know, to see and maybe even develop some sort of generic therapy that could give everybody the benefit of that, uh, you know, whatever that benefit is. Professor George Contreras, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. James T. Jensen, endowed professor of transactional law and director and program on intellectual property and technology law at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law. Be sure to check out his book, The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA. The uh, link to that, as well as his article from the Petrie Flom Center, will be in the episode description. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word of the show, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.